It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's always sad to come to the end of a series, but at the same time, it's sort of fun, and I always enjoy my ending episodes. Uh, They sort of bring some key things together. This has been a very unique series for me, and I wouldn't say that uh, uh, it is uh, as concrete since I'm not following one character or even just a few characters throughout. Each each episode has been very diverse and, and different, but it's in the same time period. And it's profound, the links between the antebellum time period between 1815 and 1861 before the Civil War and what we're going through now in our country in America. And so that has been really amazing and inspiring to just sort of see how to we can we can approach the times in which we live today. Uh, the, this particular message, the 14th episode in the series, is, uh, again, a unique one. I think all of these have been very, very unique, but uh, I, I'm very excited for it. It's, it's called Remember Ellsworth, and there's a character that I'm going to introduce you today that I almost feel like could make a series all of his own, Elmer Ellsworth. Isn't that a great name? They had some great names back in that uh, age uh, that caused us to laugh a little now. I mean, the, the name Elmer, I, I don't know why, but it, it causes us to have a little chuckle. Uh, perfectly fine name. But uh, let's dive into this, and I think we'll all really enjoy it, and I think it has the potential to greatly encourage and edify our souls. So before we get going, at the very beginning, I'm going to introduce you to someone else, not Elmer Ellsworth, but Georges Hebert, and he's a French guy. I know I'm mispronouncing his name, and I'm sure that there's all sorts of great Frenchness that I could be adding to that, uh, his pronunciation, but he is going to become a very critical character in and through even the preparations for World War I and World War II in France, because he's going to bring something back, something that the French have had in the past, but they're going to lose. And that something is actually going to become very, very important in this message, as strange as that is, because Georges Hebert uh, lived between 1875 and 1959. Well, that's after the Civil War period, after the time period in which we are talking about. And yet he's sort of symbolic because he greatly impacts, just as uh, Elmer Ellsworth is going to greatly impact the generation in the antebellum era, he's going to greatly impact the generation that we're in. And uh, his motto was, be strong to be useful. And so it's this idea that as a soldier, he trained a military men, that if you're really going to be useful, you need to be strong. If you're going to be useful, you need to be agile. If you're going to be useful, you need to be in shape. And so what is going to happen is there's going to be a, a renewal of something the French have had in the past, and that is a very unique training for their military men to make them acrobats, if you will, gymnasts. They were sort of the ones to uh, foster this in the beginning, but it was a, a different form of military man, a different form of soldier, a special forces, if you will. And so Georges Hebert is going to be very, very significant in that. Uh, this comes from uh, a website. I don't know if the website's called World Free Running Parkour Federation. I know it's a huge, long name. But uh, some of my kids have been interested in parkour, and some of you are familiar that are listening here to what that is. But for those of you that have never heard the term, it's a very strange one. It's a French term. And so I don't know what brought me to this a while back, but I was studying 
the history of parkour. And guess who comes up but Georges Hebert. And so let me read this to you because it's very fascinating. It says, in 1902, a catastrophic volcanic eruption obliterated the town of Saint-Pierre on the Caribbean island of Martinique, killing some 28,000 individuals in a flash. A young French naval lieutenant, Georges Hebert, valiantly coordinated the ex evacuation of over 700 people, both indigenous and European, from the outskirts of the town. The experience had a profound effect upon him. In addition, the heroism and tragedy he witnessed on that day reinforced his belief that, to be of real value, athletic skill and physical conditioning must be joined with courage and altruism, an epiphany which gave rise to the original motto of parkour, which is être fort pour être utile. Okay, that's, I shouldn't even be trying to do uh, French. Be strong to be useful. Now, there's a, uh, it looks like a slide is missing in this. Uh, oops, did I go forward or back? Just a second. Uh, okay, so there's a slide that was missing in that. I, I could make it sound like I did it purposely, but I didn't. But one of the things he's going to witness is he is going to witness two different types of people in the midst of this lava uh, rushing upon them. And there are going to be those, the Europeans on the island, that are going to follow what he called <clears throat> the paths that have already been set or the cultural pathways that were already uh, in the landscape. However, those people died. The Europeans got swallowed up in the lava. However, the the ones that were indigenous to the island actually did things that surprised him. They got out of the normal pathways and did things to get out of the rising lava. And it was like acrobatic. And so to him, he was deeply inspired by this, which is ultimately going to lead to, I, 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 ironically, today, something known as parkour. But parkour didn't originate, you know, recently. This is from way back in George Hebert's day. But George Hebert didn't actually come up with the acrobatics either. It had been lost. And so what he is recognizing is something has been lost. You ever felt that way when you look at the church? It's just like you read the Bible and you're like, wait a minute, we used to have something. You see, there is two ways of handling that lava that are coming upon a culture. And most of us follow the prescribed pathways, like this is how you need to do it. This is, this is what you need to do now. And those people get swallowed up. But there's a unique way of handling something. It's out of the box. And ironically, it's the old paths. So searching for culturally familiar paths. These are the paths that Georges Hebert noticed that everyone wanted to stay on. One of the ways we could call it is social, social correctness, political correctness. It's the way that is right to the current culture. And when you follow those paths in a time of crisis, in a time of difficulty, uh, I have a little uh, line underneath. It's the surest way to have the lava swallow you up. So what are we supposed to go after? And what, what's funny is as you were listening to me, I said something. Those are the old paths. Uh, another translation of scripture calls them the ancient paths. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought that's what we were following. No, no, what we're following today are culturally familiar paths. It's different. You see, we want new paths, but those new paths are actually the old paths, the ones that were before the culturally familiar paths, the ones that have always been around because they're God's paths. And so searching for the old paths, and I'm going to say about those, it's the surest way to escape the encroaching lava. So Jeremiah 6.16 says, Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. 
Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I don't want to say that that's where our generation is. I don't want to say that. However, I feel we're vulnerable to having that come out of our souls. We don't want to walk in your ways, Lord. Could you allow us to be socially and politically correct and fit into our culture and still be the church? And God's answer to that is very clear. No. You see, there's old paths, and this is the way to righteousness. This is the way to triumph. This is the way we need to go. And the lava, as it begins to billow or build up on the islands that we are on, if we stay in the culturally familiar paths, we get swallowed up. We need to learn to do some flips. We need to learn to get into God's order of things, God's athletic position. An old but new way of military training. So even though it's a new way at the time, at the turn of the century, going into the 1900s, it is actually an old way. So these were called Hebert's Ten Families of Practical Exercise. It's really funny to look at these and just imagine that these were considered new, okay, at the time. But they had been around a long time, but people were looking for ways towards ease and comfort. And when you begin to seek out ease and comfort, Things like, listen to this list, walking, <laughs> running, quadrupede, I don't even know how to say it, quadrupede, quadrupede, it means walking on all fours, climbing, jumping, balance, lifting and carrying, throwing, defense, swimming. These are things that we take for granted in our generation. And so maybe these aren't new to you, but you know that if I were to start giving lists of uh, you know, the Bible's 10 families of practical exercise, they would seem very simple, like praying. Like, oh yeah, praying, praying. Fasting. Oh yeah, 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 fasting. You know, you could read these lists of meditating on scripture, of being still in God's presence. These various exercises of soul that have led to the great athletes in Christian history. And we could say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But they've been lost. It's like the old paths. No longer do we do them. We just you know, give them a head nod and go, yes, that's important. Well, then why don't you do it? Well, because, you know, you don't have time in our modern era to do things like that. It just doesn't fit in. And as a result, we're an out-of-shape church. We are not fit for the lava when it rises. And as a result, we will get swallowed up in it. I thought this was more enjoyable and more intriguing than maybe it's going to be helpful to this message, but to win, this is a statement. This is helpful. This part is helpful. To win, men must be made ready to win. So as a basic principle of Hebert's mindset, and I would say that it does match with the Bible, it's this statement. If you want to win in your battles, you must be made ready to win. In other words, you can't expect to win if you're not made ready to win. Now, many of us want to win. We want to win in every daily battle that we face spiritually, but we're not made ready to because we've lost the athlete side of spirituality. We've lost the exercise dimension of it, and therefore we have become unfit. We are an unfit church, an unready church. So these, this is just a sampling of Hebert's 15 principles of training, which I thought were very intriguing, thinking that they're coming out in the early 1900s. And it sounds like, you know, whether it's CrossFit, if you hang around Ellerslie, it would be in the core training. Uh, and listen to this, continuity of work and exercises, 
alternating opposite efforts, like fast, slow, and then intense and relaxed. This is like, you know, you're doing exercise with muscles and you're doing them fast one day and then you do them slow the next. Progression of the intensity of efforts during the training, initial warm-up before training and final cool-down after, proper posture and sufficient breathing, correction of individual weaknesses, taking advantage of open air and sun, obtaining the hardening benefits of the elements. That's just, what, I think around seven of the 15. Fascinating list. But it's interesting because we could all look at that and go, oh, yeah, absolutely. You could know all about exercise and be out of shape. And so it's important for us to recognize that when a Georges Hebert brings back these and says, okay, our military men in France need to actually get back in shape, and he's going to change the military entire military mindset of athletics because of this, we need the same. So the advent of parkour, parkour is a very interesting uh, sport. And I I have a summary underneath it. I have a picture of a guy coming up against, looks like a cement wall. And uh, usually when we're going through life and we run into a wall, we get depressed. But not a parkour athlete. A parkour athlete is built for walls. And what does he do? He actually flips off the wall. He gets excited when he sees a wall like this. And that's the subtitle I have on this. Obstacles mean advantage. You see, when you have that right idea, when you're in shape, when you're ready for the wall, as opposed to surprised by the wall, you do a flip off of it. So now I have the same picture, but I have a different title up on the screen, and that is the spiritual athlete. You see, that is what we're called to be. I I don't really care if you ever get involved in parkour. That means nothing to me, nor do I think God has a big opinion about that either. However, he is interested in you becoming a parkour athlete internally where you can take obstacles and turn them to your advantage. And so underneath that term, the spiritual athlete, it says ready, strong, and useful. So the reason Georges Hebert said, be strong so that you can be useful, that was his entire premise. The spiritual life is built the same way. God is going to bless us, why? So that we can become a blessing. God is going to make us strong, why? So we can give strength to others. God is going to send his son. Why? So he can spend his life and give us life. See, this is the principle of the kingdom, being made strong to be poured out. This is how it works. But to be made strong, we need to be willing. We need to be willing to get in shape. The year 1859. Okay, some of you are wondering how this uh, fit in with uh, our message today. But so we're going back to the antebellum period, which is going to end right at the start of the Civil War, which is going to be in 1861. That's the same year uh, President Lincoln is going to enter office, too. So we have a lot of drama that is taking place in this time. So the year 1859, if we were just to stop, pause, and look and study the generation, you're going to notice a similarity between the culture in 1859 uh, and the culture before World War II uh, in America and in Great Britain and the culture right now. And that is, it was an undisciplined, self-inclined, sloppy generation. You know, in other words, what we see today is not unusual in the history of the world. It's a common cycle uh, that when things get easy and, and comfort begins to reign in a culture, that you end up seeing a lack of discipline, an inclination towards self-preservation, self-glory, self-pampering, and it becomes sloppy. And this is exactly where we're at in 1859. Now I have a new picture on the screen. 
Uh, it's a picture of Elmer Ellsworth. Uh, so I, I say introducing Elmer Ellsworth. Really cool photo. Uh, and then it's I, I say a man searching for the old paths. You see, he was interested in getting back the grit. He was interested in seeing his nation made strong again. I mean, he grew up on the stories of the Revolutionary War, and, and he, he recognized that there was a time when men were more fit and more ready to stand for what mattered. And so Elmer Ellsworth is looking at the old paths. He doesn't like the cultural pathways that are opening up before him now, and he doesn't want to go in that direction. So he is looking for something different. I don't know how many of you fit what is taking place inside of Elmer Ellsworth right now. In other words, where in your mind, you're like, I don't really want to be like the world around me. I don't want to go in that direction. I don't want to behave that way. I don't want to think that way. I don't want to talk that way. I don't want to entertain that way. I want something different. Well, that's a little Elmer Ellsworth-ishness right there coming out. The influence of the French Zouaves. Soldiers that were ready to win. And so this is the same thing. When you, when you hear about Georges Hebert, he is going to reflect back on a time of French military excellence. And you know what he's going to think of? The French Zouaves. These were like the special forces units back in the late 1700s, the early 1800s. This is going to be something that Elmer Ellsworth is going to be inspired by. I don't blame him. It's actually really inspiring when you read about him. The same thing happens to us as Christians, where we look back and we're like saying, God, show me some examples of what it could be like. And we see a George Mueller. We see a Hudson Taylor. We see a Corey Ten Boom. We see an Amy Carmichael. And we're like, yeah, like that. That's what is happening inside of Elmer Ellsworth in regard to the, the French Zouaves, soldiers that were ready to win. So here's a quote from David Reynolds. Elmer Ellsworth's heart was in military matters. While in Chicago, he met Charles A. de Villiers, okay, again, a French name, these, these are really hard for me, who had served in a French Zouave, I don't even know that I'm pronouncing Zouave correctly, right, and who had served in a French Zouave regiment in the Crimean War. Under de Villiers' guidance, Ellsworth became adept at the intricate military exercise of the Zouaves. So if you could imagine this, Elmer Ellsworth is going to start training as a gymnast, as an acrobat. We would probably call it a parkour athlete, but it's the military maneuver version of it. Elmer Ellsworth is training vigorously in this, and this man who is skilled in it is passing on the heritage, not to another Frenchman, but to an American named Elmer Ellsworth, and he is becoming adept at this. Fascinated by the exotic Zouaves, Ellsworth studied them and decided to create a Zouave unit of his own. The United States Zouave cadets of Chicago conducted their first drills under their young leader in April 1859. He aimed to improve his men morally as well as physically, and to place the company in a position second to none in the United States. He wanted to establish something new. Okay, now I really relate with this, and I know there's a lot of you that listen to this podcast that are of the same ilk, and that is that you are tired of the mediocrity in the church today, and you're really desirous to build a Zouave unit. So if you're a pastor, that's probably a good fit for how you would describe your church. It doesn't mean your church always functions as a Zouave unit, but that's what you have a vision for. You have a desire to see an example made in this generation where people can look at the Zouave unit that you were training and say, yeah, something like that. 
And that's exactly what's going to happen with Elmer Ellsworth. So, abstemious to the point of avoiding tobacco, tea, coffee, and coffee, he forbade his men from entering bar rooms, gambling halls, or houses of prostitution. So, big word to start out this quote, abstemious. You've heard of the word uh, abst abstinence or abstain, which means to hold back from something. So, David Reynolds is sort of, I don't know if you could say making fun of him for this, but Elmer Ellsworth was a strong man of conviction. He was a Christian, and he wanted to live his life different than the culture around him, which was given to drunkenness, which is a very common thing, given to tobacco, uh, which is a very common thing. And so he abstained from these things. And so when he trained his men, his cadets, his Zouave cadets, he didn't allow them to touch these things either. So he gave them really strict rules that back then stood out and almost were a laughing stock. And that is they couldn't enter bar rooms, gambling halls, or houses of prostitution. His zouaves, striking in their oriental uniforms, performed publicly before crowds who were thrilled by their precise coordination and quickness. Ellsworth trained them to perform exercises that combined acrobatics with military moves, such as running in double quick step, firing as skirmishers, firing at skirmishers while advancing or lying down, parrying for the head, and so on. Of course, most of us, when it says and so on, we're like, I didn't understand any of those things in the first place. Let's just summarize it to say it was very impressive, and the crowds loved it. Thousands of people, every time they performed, thousands of people. It was one of the most popular things in the country at the time. Soon Ellsworth took the Zouaves on the road, appearing before tremendous crowds in many cities throughout the North. So what did Lincoln think of this 23-year-old? That's how old this guy is. He's five foot five and he's 23 years old. That's fairly young. And yet he is making a huge impact on his generation. That is a very stirring thing. And so I know some of you out there are 23 years old right now and you're thinking, wow, I need to get a move on it. Elmer Ellsworth did this. I want to do this. Yeah, build a Zouave unit. Bring back the discipline of the faith. Bring back the excellence of it. I want to see a church made ready for battle. Are we? I'm not sure that we are. Where are the Elmer Ellsworths of our day? So what did Lincoln think of this 23-year-old? Because this is happening around the country at the exact same time Lincoln is running for president and coming into his presidency. So I just have three quotes from Lincoln about Elmer Ellsworth. They're all good. Elmer Ellsworth is the greatest little man I ever met. That's quite the quote. And listen to this one. Elmer Ellsworth has a genius for war. Well, not a bad statement from a great president. And this is from a letter that was written from Abraham Lincoln to Ellsworth's parents after his passing, which I don't want to give much away, but he, he does pass away, as do we all. Ellsworth's power to command men was surpassingly great. This power, combined with a fine intellect, an indomitable energy, and a taste altogether military, constituted in him, as seemed to me, the best natural talent in that department I ever knew. And yet he was singularly modest. What a great compliment. Abraham Lincoln was greatly impacted by Elmer Ellsworth. Abraham Lincoln actually moved to have Elmer Ellsworth come over the training of all of his military men. But according to the Constitution, he was unable to do that. It was a huge disappointment to Lincoln. He's a 23-year-old guy. And he literally, because of his life lived, was chosen by the President of the United States for a unique position. 
recruiting the Bahois. So you have to go way back in our series to remember the Bahois. They're the firemen from New York, rather crude characters that are going to fall in love with Lincoln. But they are, I mean, they're strong, they're ready, they're eager, they're ready for a fight. And so Elmer Ellsworth is going to be recruiting for a very specific job, and that is to protect Washington, D.C. So even though he couldn't be put over the military, Lincoln is going to ask if he could build a unit that could actually protect, like the White House, for instance. I mean, hey, we need some protection. We're vulnerable here. So who is Elmer Ellsworth going to go after? But the Bohoys. And he's going to take these, this rough crowd. Remember, you, could, you can't find a group more different than Elmer Ellsworth than the Bohoys. Okay? They're crude. They're rude. They're uh, obnoxious. And Elmer Ellsworth is a picture of discipline. But he goes to the Bohoys. What, what an incredible mental picture that is. It could make a great movie. On April 29th, this is David Reynolds speaking. On April 29th, Ellsworth was in New York City organizing a regiment to fight for the Union. For recruits, he sought none other than the original Bahois, Manhattan firemen, known to be brave, tough, and skilled with firearms because of their pastime of going on target excursions. For Ellsworth, the Bahois had the medal for being good soldiers, ready for the most arduous situations. Within a week, Ellsworth had selected 1,100 men taken from New York's fire companies. He organized them as the 11th New York Volunteer Army. They were known alternately as First Fire Zouaves, Ellsworth Zouaves, and the First Regiment New York Zouave. The young men quickly fell into line under Ellsworth. A slight man who stood five feet five inches tall and had flowing back black curls and a mustache, the handsome Ellsworth had a magnetic, no-nonsense presence that made even the Bahois, given to disorder and insouciance, act in a disciplined way. Isn't that a great statement? That even the Bahois, because of Ellsworth, even though he was a little short guy, because of the way he lived his life, it brought even 1,100 Bahois into discipline and order. The puritanical Ellsworth, by the way, David Reynolds is saying that. I don't know that he was overly impressed with Ellsworth's abstinence. <laughs> so that can be somewhat of a put down too. The puritanical Ellsworth prohibited drinking, swearing, and unruly behavior among his troops who became known as his pet lambs, ready to obey his every command and aware of the punishment that was forthcoming if they did not. An aura of mythic fearlessness surrounded the firemen soldiers. So the Zouaves from New York, these Bohois, there was this mythic fearlessness. They feared nothing. A common saying had it that if a battle was raging against the Confederates and if you rang a fire bell behind it, Ellsworth's fire zouaves would rush forward and scatter the enemy in order to reach the fire on the other side. It's a great picture. Early in the morning of May 24, this is 1960, or I'm sorry, 1861. Let's get in the right century here. Early in the morning of May 24th, 1861, Ellsworth and his troops crossed by boats and bridges from Washington to Virginia. So this is a line that is going to divide the two sides of the war right here. Virginia seceding and taking the side of the South. And so this is a very significant movement forward in the beginnings of what we know as the Civil War. As they entered Alexandria, Ellsworth saw the rebel flag suspended on a pole from a high dormer in the Marshall House. 
He thought of sending a small detail to remove the flag. That flag so offended the North because it was a statement of rebellion. I mean, they were supposed to be a part of this union. Instead, they're going to secede and they're going to have their own flag and they're going to say, hey, we no longer uh, respect you. We no longer honor you. In fact, we will fight you. Hey, that's not appropriate. And so Ellsworth, remember, he's this disciplined guy that values the union uh, that has been built uh, on the shoulders of the Revolutionary War. He wants to see this uh, constitutional republic stand. And so he's offended by that flag. And so he thought of sending a small detail to remove the flag, but then decided to retrieve it himself. Along with a corporal, Francis Brownwell, Brownell, he entered the hotel and went upstairs, where he found narrow stairs leading up to the dormer. Once there, he hauled in the flag and started with it downstairs along with Brownell. When he reached the second floor, he was met by the hotel's owner, James W. Jackson, who leveled a shotgun at Ellsworth and blasted him in the chest, killing him instantly. In the next moment, Jackson himself was sprawled on the floor, killed by Brownell's carbine. And so I actually have a picture, a drawing of this, sort of a famous drawing. There's Ellsworth shot. Sorry, guys, this is somewhat of a uh, a violent uh, picture. No blood. You can't see it. It's like black and white. But uh, he has the flag in his hand that he he ripped down. And uh, But this is how he dies. Ellsworth is the first officer from the North that is going to die in the war. In fact, I think he's, he may be the first officer in the, from both sides that is going to die in the war, which is a very, uh, it's not necessarily the position anyone wants to have, but it becomes very, very prestigious. So David Reynolds continues in his description. The news of Ellsworth's death shook the entire North. Ellsworth had attracted widespread admiration during his pre-war tour with the United States Zwaves, and he was revered for having helped protect the capital from invasion with his fire Zwaves. He had chosen the rowdiest elements of the American population, the Bahois, and turned them into disciplined, obedient soldiers ready to direct their energy toward the defense of the Union. He persuaded all but only a handful of them to sign on for military service, not for the required 90 days, but for the entire length of the war. For Ellsworth to become the first Union officer killed in battle was both gut-wrenching and inspirational. He suddenly was a martyr to the Northern cause. Now, that description of Ellsworth is so inspiring to me if we take it out of the military, the Civil War context, and we, we show what he did at his young age, 23 years old. He is going to recruit the hardest, rowdiest bunch out of the North. He's going to go after the toughest batch. And he is not just going to make them useful. He's going to make, he's going to discipline and make them useful. But then he's going to convince them not to just sign up for 90 days of military service, but for the entire time of the war. They were brought in and convinced by this man. Something about this little five foot five, 23 year old man had such a magnanimity, such an influence. His discipline, his choice is in life, which were higher. He was aimed after something higher. He wasn't aiming into the dirt. He wanted to live his life for a reason. He wanted to bring back the old paths. He wanted to bring it to his generation. And he did. And even in the choice to not send a a small detail to go up and get that flag, but to go up and get it himself, it cost him his life. However, that's symbolic of what he represents. And so the name of this lesson This episode is Remember Ellsworth. Well, I didn't come up with that phrase. Ellsworth's passing deeply affected Lincoln, who thought of the young man as a family member. Reporters arrived at the White House for an interview and found the president unable to speak. He was in tears. He had just learned of Ellsworth's death, 
As he dried his face with a handkerchief, he said, I will make no apology, gentlemen, for my weakness. But I knew poor Ellsworth well and held him in great regard. Remember Ellsworth was a popular Union slogan throughout the war, shouted by soldiers and hailed in poems. Remember Ellsworth. It became the war cry of the North. So here's a poem. Before he found a martyr's crown in freedom's cause, O bright renown, he tore the flag of treason down. Remember Ellsworth, boys. Remember Ellsworth, this, this shall be the rallying cry of all the free who would our flag still honored see. Remember Ellsworth, boys. Girding the loins. So it feels like such a shift. We go from Georges Hebert all the way back in time to the Civil War, now all the way back to biblical times. Girding the loins. Uh, it's one of those phrases that doesn't make much sense to the modern mind. Of course, some of you that have been taught biblically, you know what that means. It's a very, very significant action that God himself is going to command us to do. But what does it mean? You see, the, we don't have long flowing dresses, dress like uh, clothing that they had back then, but you can't really run in that, right? So what they would have to do is tie it up and there was a girding process. What was that doing? That was readying them for battle. Before you would go to battle, you would gird the loins. Before you would run, you would gird the loins. So before you are ready for action, you would gird, which is why God says, hey, Christian, gird the loins. So what, is, what, what I say underneath that is the necessary step, step to prepare one to act, to fight, to run, to be useful. I'm just going to give a series, I think it's around three scriptures that are very specific on this. Ephesians 6.14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, you don't let the truth just you know, flow like a dress. You gird yourself with it. You make yourself strong in the truth. If the truth says to exercise, you exercise. If the truth says to run, you run. You do what you're supposed to do. You gird your loins with the truth. Luke 12, 35, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Now, this is a statement that Jesus is making in regards to those that are waiting for the bridegroom to return. You see, they need to be ready for him to return. And what does that readiness look like? It's their waist girded and their lamp alight. You see, this is part of what we need to be doing in our own souls. We need a little Georges Hebert brought back to us, where someone says, hey, guys, you're out of shape. Let's get the French military back in shape, or for our cause, let's get the Church of Jesus Christ back in shape. And that's exactly what Elmer Ellsworth represents. He says, let's get this country back in shape. Guys, we have fallen to disrepair. I'm, I'm studying from uh, Charles, boy, I can't remember his name. Remember the Zouave? I'm studying under this guy so I can learn how to get the good stuff back, the old paths of how the human body is supposed to function so that we can function with excellence. That's how we function spiritually. We need Elmer Ellsworth spiritually in our world right now to call the church of Jesus Christ back into the training room to get their acrobatics down afresh. When they, uh, when they approach a wall, they do a flip on it to get their parkour athleticism down. And finally, 2 Timothy 4.2, be instant in season and out of season. 
You see, we're supposed to be ready. That's what instant means. You are ready, just like a lion uh, pacing in a cage, ready for that door to open so that he can leap out. We are fretting in our cage, ready to go to battle. What does it mean to remember Ellsworth? So here's a simple way of describing it. It means to be ready to act, ready to be useful, ready to rip down the enemy's flag ready to lay down your life in order to inspire others to live. See, it's not just the North and the Union that are going to have this as their battle cry. This is Lincoln's battle cry. He's going to remember Ellsworth. And even he, just as Ellsworth, is going to lay down his life to inspire others, so will Lincoln lay down his life to inspire others. It's one of Lincoln's leadership secrets. And I would say, since it happens to be a leadership secret of Jesus Christ, it's not bad for us to adopt it. All right, so I'm going to go through the leadership secrets of Lincoln one final time as we finish this series. Number one, draw loving lines, not hard lines. Number two, approach the nasty stuff like a Quaker. Number three, never, ever send the first draft. Number four, listen like everyone in the room is smarter than you. Number five, bust through the cultural blind spots. Number six, inspire a Clapham sect in your living room. Number seven, slavery is not supposed to be a permanent condition. Number eight, define your hills to die on so you know where not to perish. Number nine, become excellent on the water, not in it. Number 10, wrestle to establish that you're a stayer. Number 11, approach your enemies with a soccer ball instead of a gun. Number 12, don't just talk it out live it out. Number 13, walk the tightrope like Harry Colcord. And today's, remember Ellsworth. I pray, hope, that this has been an encouraging series for you and that there have been nuggets in it that have impacted you. But let me just pray that God would seal this final one in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Father, I pray that we would remember Ellsworth, that we would remember that right now is the time to be ready, to gird our loins and to light our lamps. Lord, that we don't want to wait until it's past that time and past the time the bridegroom arrives to go searching for our oil as the five virgins did, but Lord, that we would be made ready right now, that we would say to you, Lord Jesus, Make us fit. Make us athletic for the hour in which we have been called. Lord, may we function as Ellsworth did. And may we bring back the old paths to our generation. And even be willing to be mocked and ridiculed in order to do it. Lord Jesus, this is unto you for your glory, honor, and praise. Make us fit to win this war. It's in the great name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.